I don't know the difference between a bagel and a croissant. <laughs> there is a huge difference between a bagel and a croissant. And I'm kind of offended. That <laughs> yeah. You don't so, know that. But... My morning was not so bad. Well, it was a little. So, like, I woke up this morning and I was in some Zoom meetings and I was looking at myself and I'm like, why do I look so weird? And I realized because it looks like, like my under eyes are swollen and it looks like I've been crying, even though I haven't been. Like, it's not even like I was watching a sad TV show last <laughs> night and was sobbing for three hours. And that, you know, explains it. I haven't cried recently. So I don't know why I look like I've been crying. And this morning I was like, Evan, does my face look swollen to you? And he's like, oh, yeah, you look really puffy. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I was like, thanks. <laughs> I mean, I appreciate your honesty, but I don't Did know why. Did you put some ice on it? <laughs> like on no, it doesn't hurt. I well, just yeah, it's like reduce weird. the swelling. <laughs> yeah, whatever. The puffy Life goes on. Oh, I gosh. will, I don't know. It'll go away on its own probably. And if not, then I don't know. Maybe I'm just dying or something. It's well, let's hope not. Um, <laughs> so I will say last week, was we got the most like listens that we've ever gotten in a single week like it Wait, was really yes and um i think that's really cool uh hey people as new listeners um if you're listening to like our most recent episode or like if you listen to our most recent episodes they are a lot better than our first few episodes because we were you know I was thinking about going back. I've seen other podcasters do this where they go back and like mark their first 10 episodes as saying like, hey, disclaimer on this. Um, it might be terrible. So yeah, uh, listen to some of the newer episodes. That's something I kind of want to do because we our first episode gets like a ton of listens. And I'm that type. I'm the type of person who I like to go to the beginning of a podcast. Oh, and, like, you're one of those listen. people. You can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I know um, you can't. But yeah, so I do that. And so I could see like people listen to our first few and like we didn't really have our groove yet. We still had our incredible personalities, but like we just didn't just find awkward. our groove just yet. Yeah. So I um I I would worry that some people might listen to the first few and they're like, eh. <laughs> like yeah we're done like what is wrong with these girls but yeah like may- maybe we can put a disclaimer maybe yeah, one day we'll re- do that we could re-record the first one as an anniversary episode one day i was thinking for our hundredth episode oh, okay. that's what we can do is we can re-record okay okay yeah i just i remember feeling like so nervous and so uncomfortable and like i wrote <laughs> down my jokes like in a book <laughs> oh and we also we were recording it for the second time oh yeah we had to do it twice i also uh the first time i didn't write my case because i was like i don't know how we're doing this and so i was like um you did it I yeah didn't remember notice. and even when we re-recorded i didn't write it down yeah yeah well i'm you know i can assist with putting in disclaimers if all we have to do is edit it on like anchor or whatever um yeah. but yeah i that's maybe it's something that i do different knowing from starting a podcast is i never go back to the original episodes you know i always try to start like 
15 in just because you know it it can be fun to like go and listen back before that but I just don't think it gives you a good idea of where we are now and kind of what our vibe is and I bet like 25 episodes from now we'll look back on like this episode and be like oh my god like (laughs) what a bunch of weirdos oh I did have some notes to talk about Mm -hmm. um so we need to sue somebody do you do you want to know why why so you know the podcast uh crime junkie that everybody listens to that I also listen to no very good sure um, Natalie, you're true. <laughs> anyway, it's like probably one of the number one true crime podcasts out there right now. Okay. But they just, um, they're doing like kind of a bunch of spinoffs under their um, thing. And they came out with a podcast called Red Collar. Hmm. <laughs> so I think we should sue. What is the Red Collar podcast about? Also, I mean, you know, like, I get it. They're in the game. Because we not- definitely came up with a name <laughs> and they've definitely heard of us before. And, you know, they're just copying. No. Um, I looked into it. I believe it's just, um, like, about serial killers or psychopaths, how they can be in your everyday life and you might not notice them. Okay. Something like that. But don't listen, guys. We're boycotting. I mean. That's a pink- lot. I am probably going to listen to it. <laughs> Pink collar is a little bit catchier, but you know, I support everyone. Do your thing. <laughs> and we're so women only, and it sounds like they just do everybody. Yeah. So, oh, everybody. That's uh, all I had to say about that. I I heard it and I was like, oh, not good. <laughs> well, I actually doesn't matter. Um, so wait, 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 wait. Yeah. You did you get so you said you got one of my Christmas presents that I sent you? Did you get both of the Christmas presents I sent you yet? Um I didn't um check. <laughs> <gasps> I just haven't gone to like my mailbox, but I will. That's okay. And then I well, I already picked out yours. I just haven't pulled the trigger because I have to, like, search. I, I also need to, like, see all options before I can do anything. <laughs> so um, I'll what send yours. And then we can open them together. It'll be great. Yes. <laughs> that was, that was Jarrell's idea. So That's such a smart idea, Jarrell. Thank you. The best producer we've ever had. <laughs> oh, he's producer now. <laughs> I was not made aware of this promotion. <laughs> he got his um he 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 did his uh his like wrapped Spotify wrapped and we're like his second most played podcast. Aww, which is like know. really great because he listens to like a hundred podcasts and he is Wait, like Wait, seriously? Oh like God, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, lucky us and his top podcast no longer puts it on Spotify anymore, and so he's like, next year you guys will be number one. <laughs> Well, that's funny that he listens to us on Spotify. Yeah. I I don't listen to any of my podcasts on Spotify, and I wish that, like, Apple Podcasts did, like, a wrapped. Although, yeah. they would tell me how much time I spend listening to podcasts, which <laughs> is probably a very concerning number. Yeah. I feel like it's at least three to four hours a day, yeah. just because I have it on in the background, or, like, I listen to it to fall asleep. Agreed. Yeah. I, um, I listen to two podcasts on... Um, 
Spotify, like Michelle Obama's podcast every now and then. I don't listen to it regularly. And then like another, like Jamel Hill, I also don't listen to it very regularly. But everything, I have so many podcasts on Apple. Like it'd be, I don't know how they would. (laughs) I feel like it's a thousand million hours. Like, yeah, it's a lot. (laughs) It is a lot. They probably just like aren't even going to bother with all Uh, that data. Were you, did you do your Spotify wrapped? Were you satisfied? You don't just share like your tops or anything, but like, were you satisfied with your wrapped? Do you feel like? <laughs> I truthfully have not done it. And okay. I, you know, when we met, I was like the biggest <laughs> yeah. music junkie in the whole wide world. And like, I would just go to concerts by myself and like sit outside and I just listen to music nonstop. But I really don't listen to that much music anymore because oh, really? I feel like. I like know the bands I like and I'm like I don't want to listen to anybody else until they come out with new music okay okay so like bleachers for instance like yeah I feel like they're my favorite band ever and like I'm happy they're coming out with new music yes I um uh (laughs) so first I'm not satisfied with my rap and so my rap is very like skewed where (laughs) this person was not my top artist maybe they could have been in the top five but I'm obsessed with one particular singer and I'm like he should have been my top he should be my number one (laughs) um I'm I, I like really sad music so I am like obsessed with Louis Capaldi and like all of his songs huh i don't know who that is have you ever heard the song like someone you loved is that the british guy he's i think he's scottish scottish yeah but it's like like i'm I'm obsessed with Louis Polly. but was that the guy i don't know about it yeah maybe maybe (laughs) you get me through it all yes yes yes, (laughs) that's it that's it so i'm like i feel like it should have been him um but it ended up being freaking taylor swift and i love taylor swift but it was not (laughs) i saw everybody's and everybody's was just like taylor swift Swift." i'm like she i've been listening to like louis capaldi nonstop all like year and like this lady just came out with an album in july like i disagree vehemently but i will say i watched um uh taylor swift's like she did a like log cabin session whatever Mm -hmm. on um it's on disney plus and jack antonoff is on it oh and (laughs) i will say like i think jack antonoff steals the show like just watching him like play the guitar and like how he gets really into playing the music and like playing the piano and all that stuff i'm just this guy he's an artist I love Jack Antonoff. He is just so cute. He is the lead singer of Bleachers for people who don't know. Yes. Just like, yes. that's my favorite band. Um, <laughs> yeah, I love him. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week, we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc., etc. If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a follow on social media at pinkcollar underscore pod. 
everybody leave us a review um it really helps us get listeners like natalie was saying like our first few episodes or so weren't our favorites so let people know that you like the podcast like maybe say later episodes that you enjoy and for every review we get we will donate a dollar to the national center for victims of crime i saw that we cracked 10 reviews we're at we're at 11 views so practically world famous i know Um, hey we are we are we are actually world famous because according to the spotify wrapped what was it like 13 countries 13 countries I haven't, I don't even know 13 countries. It is amazing. also possible that we have like one listener that travels a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully not right now. Well, yeah. Um, But that's really cool. Like leave us any comment, whatever, or any review. Tell us what your favorite episode has been or what types of crime you like that we cover the most, you know? What's your favorite crime to commit? That's what I would like to know. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Don't give me crap. Piloting movies. Uh, Pirating. Piloting. Did you just say piloting? Piloting movies. movies Natalie really likes making I'm movie pilots. Ju- you know. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> leave us, you know, case suggestions. We have a few that we have to go through. Um, that yeah. If you re- sent us a case, we will get to it. It's just I can't do like 30,000 murder cases in a row, so we have to space them out a little bit. <laughs> but it goes on our list, so we'll get to it. Don't worry. Woohoo, yeah. So this I'm week getting started. This week, Rachel um, you know, had a really great case idea. Um, as all of her case ideas are great because Rachel comes up with 90% of our case ideas because she, is awesome well (laughs) it's more the story behind this is because of the quarantine i get on these weird youtube rabbit holes where i like just end up watching lots of random things that Mm -hmm. are weird um and i (laughs) usually wouldn't like i usually wouldn't watch youtube at all but you know like squishy makeover videos or like i don't know just like random models that are like interesting dress up like mermaids or whatever um but i did watch a youtube video about people who had gone missing and then turned up however long later so spoiler for my case (laughs) i forgot am i going first no i think i am okay Um, well yeah so well our topic yeah is officially liars people who like lied in some way um and that was a part of their yeah people who are deceptive in 1996 at the age of 17 crystal mangum not magnum which is what i keep writing (laughs) that i'm glad you made that correction because i was like that sounds like a name that someone would make up for themselves yeah the magnum crystal no um so crystal james bond villain or something yeah so crystal mangum from durham north carolina filed a police report in which she said that when she was 14 she was kidnapped by her boyfriend who was 21 at the time of the alleged incident so statutory rape um and two other men she said that she was taken to creedmoor north carolina and was raped by them as the charges moved forward crystal decided not to pursue them any further 
Crystal's credibility came into question mm-hmm. by her parents. On one hand, her father, Travis, believed that Crystal was making the incident up and that it never occurred at all. Her mother, Mary, however, believed that she that it's possible that the situation occurred, but she believes that Crystal was untruthful about the timeline. Basically, she said that it was pretty impossible for it to have happened when she was 14. And so she believed that maybe the incident actually happened closer to the time that Crystal was reporting it. So around the age of 17. Um, So Crystal joined the Navy after graduating from high school and she got married soon thereafter to Nathaniel McNeil. And as her marriage, her marriage kind of quickly began to fall apart. And so as her marriage fell apart, Crystal reported to law enforcement that her husband threatened to kill her. Um, obviously, he denied that that ever happened. And so but the case and the charges moved forward. Once more, Crystal backed out and just like, like disappeared, stopped going to court and all of that. And so the charges were dismissed. Um, so the thing, the two things that I've said before I'm not saying that they didn't happen and I'm not saying that they did, but all of these things I think later on are going to lend themselves to questions about um, Crystal's credibility in the main crime that we're going to talk about. And so in 2002, Crystal was back in Durham and working as an exotic dancer. One day at work, she gave a male customer a lap dance and then proceeded to seal his car, which was a taxi cab that he drove. Um, Oh, boy. Yeah. And so that led to a 70 mile per hour police chase. And so when the police finally stopped Crystal, she actually tried to run over a police officer, but instead she actually hit his police vehicle. Her blood alcohol content was more than two times the legal limit. And she ended up pleading guilty to assault on a government official, larceny, speeding to elude arrest, and driving while impaired. She was sentenced to three weekends in jail, which is so strange to me, but whatever. And uh, she had to pay a $4,200 fine, and she was also sentenced to two years of probation. Now, main case. You probably, I, I feel like you should... I don't know. I feel like everyone should be familiar with this, but I said the case to Brooke. and She had no idea what I was just talking about. Um, I have no idea what you're talking about (laughs) so far. Um, So, yeah, uh, this is the case of the the Duke lacrosse rape case. Um, Oh, yeah. I think feels a little familiar. Okay, continue. And so in March of 2006, the Duke University lacrosse team found themselves stuck in Durham, North Carolina, instead of on spring break with the rest of their peers. The captains of the lacrosse team decided that not being on spring break was no reason for them not to have an alcohol-filled good time, so they did as most college kids would do. They threw a party for their team at their university-owned off-campus house. As the teammates arrived for the party... The captains let them know that they're hiring a a stripper for the event for the evening and asked everyone to contribute to the cost. One of the captains called an escort service to hire strippers and specifically asked for that the strippers be two white women. When the women arrived, however, they weren't white. One of the women, Kim Roberts, was black and Asian and the other, Crystal, was black. That shouldn't uh, even be something that you can specify. That's disgusting. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess people have preferences. I don't know. Um, 
So prior to getting there, Crystal had taken Flexeril, or um, which the long name is cyclobenzaprine, which is a muscle relaxant, and she had had some alcohol. I, you know, revealing a little bit of my medical information. So I actually am prescribed Flexeril. And just speaking from my personal experience, it makes me very groggy and sleepy. And so it's also not advised to drive after taking it. Um, and like a lot of medications, consuming alcohol is not that, Yeah, that's a pretty big no-no. Yeah. And so it's definitely not a good idea to take a muscle relaxer and drink alcohol. Yes, um, especially those are both, I would imagine, depressants. Yeah, so they, they both are. have the same kind of effect. Exactly. And just, you know, it's going to make it ex- the effect exponential, I guess. And so fortunately, Crystal didn't drive there. Um, so she was actually dropped off at the party by someone else. So that's good, I guess. Um, so upon arrival, the women started doing what they were there to do. They performed a little strip show, you know, did some dancing. Um, during this, one of the Duke players asked Kim and Crystal if they had sex toys. And there was kind of a vulgar exchange between Kim and that player. I'm not repeating it. Um, but it basically led to the Duke player holding up a broom and suggesting that Crystal use it as a sexual instrument on oh, herself. Oh, no. Um, but it was more like a go screw yourself type of a thing, not like, yeah. And so I guess this was startling or upsetting to both Kim and Crystal because they both ran to the bathroom and locked themselves in. While they were in the bathroom, two players named, one named Reed Seligman, Seligman? whatever, and Colin Finnerty left the party. All of the uh, all of the players in attendance had each contributed $100 for the night's performance, which, wow. Um, and they were disappointed that they didn't get the show that they paid for. And so the team captain who had hired them convinced Kim and Crystal to continue to perform. But when they came back, the same scenario, like that like vulgar exchange between like Kim and another player um like occurred again and so again they ended up locking themselves in the bathroom um and so at this point most of the party guests left on their own and the others that were still there were actually asked to leave by the players that did live there and then eventually the women like came outside eventually the women went outside and then they had another like I guess, vulgar exchange with the players that were still outside. And so Kim just yelled some like pretty rude insults. Um, One would say maybe attacking their manhood. Um, And she ended the insult by calling them white boys. And she also said to one of them that he couldn't get it on his own and he had to pay for it. Um, And so he, (laughs) the Duke player yelled back, quote, we asked for whites, not (gasps) N words. Um, and so shame on you. Don't say that word. (laughs) And so at that point, Crystal and Kim left, which I definitely think that situation could have gotten way worse. Um, especially I think they both, everyone probably was kind of in the wrong in that. And I definitely think it could have been a lot more horrible. Um, and, but after they left, Kim called the police and reported that a white guy had harassed her and called her the N-word. And so police actually went out there, but no one answered the door at the house. And so, and the women were gone. So whatever. And then 
This case is so long. And so then Kim and Crystal, they had gotten into an argument in like Kim's car. And so Kim tried to push Crystal out of the car. Um, but like Crystal was like, I'm not getting out of this car. I think the car might've been still moving when she was trying to kiss or trying to kick her out. Um, and so she ended up pulling into a grocery store parking lot and she went into the grocery store and asked for help. Um, and the security guard was, the security guard came out and she was unsuccessful in trying to get Crystal out of the car. And so they, like, she called the police. And when the officers got there, they were able to get Crystal out of the car, but she refused to identify herself or answer any questions. She was clearly intoxicated, like, all over the place. She wasn't able to walk on her own. She was, like, barely standing on her own. And so, um, you know, given her alcohol consumption and the fact that she took um, cyclobenzaprine, I don't think her behavior is like surprising at all. Mm -hmm. Um, I think everyone will probably have different reactions, but I think that's like kind of a standard one. And so, yeah. And she just came from a pretty heated, like emotionally provoking exchange. And like, I could imagine feeling it's when, men are very verbally aggressive towards women it can be especially scary that someone who is probably bigger than you um is you know acting in an aggressive manner so they might have had like no intention Mm -hmm. at all of um escalating or anything like that but it can just be scary to be Mm -hmm. on that end and especially you know racially charged uh language is for sure doesn't make you feel great Rachel's right guys <laughs> <laughs> and so the alcohol so the uh, police were like they could smell the alcohol like coming out of her pores and I guess there was some concern for her and I actually commend what the police did here because I feel like every time I would watch um like PD or live PD or whatever whenever somebody was drunk or anything like that they were arrested and so in this case the police actually brought her to a mental health and substance treatment center and were like I think she needs to be like committed (laughs) um um, I think she needs help and so yeah that's what in a perfect world should be done if they're not causing harm to other people then just separate them and let them um you know kind of cycle the substances out of their system until they're at their regular functioning state yeah but we also hear so many cases of like people getting arrested and put in like the drunk tank and i'm like that's not helpful that sounds like my like that sounds like my worst nightmare honestly (laughs) yeah um and so during intake crystal was asked if she had been assaulted and crystal said yes and so this is like a different version of events from what i said earlier Per Crystal's version of events, after Kim and Crystal came out of the bathroom the first time and they were convinced to perform, she somehow got separated from Kim. And at that point, the Duke lacrosse players forced her into the bathroom and began assaulting her. She alleged that for 30 minutes, they choked, beat and raped her. She specifically claimed that she was raped by 20 men. They took her to the hospital and they examined her. Her skin, arms, and legs had no swelling. There were no abnormalities or tenderness on her back, chest, or neck. Um, But she did have three small cuts on her knee and her ankle. Uh, She told them that she 
didn't receive any physical blows like by hand like nobody like punched her I guess but she and she also had some like vaginal swelling Um, so usual disclaimer someone can be raped without showing any visible or outward signs of like abuse or like trauma to like their skin or body um so i don't i'm not saying that like the fact that she didn't have um like bruises or anything like that is um like indication that she wasn't raped um but i do think that in this case the findings from the exam don't match her original claim that she was beaten and choked because you would expect that if somebody was at least choked enough to like restrain them, that there might be some like redness, swelling, things like that, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I'm also, and I I would love your opinion on this. I'm also curious about what the protocol is for taking down statements with someone who is so intoxicated that the police just tried to have them involuntarily committed at a mental health and substance treatment center. (laughs) Like, I'm not saying that she wasn't in her right mind, but I am saying that she could have very well still have been intoxicated. Right. I'm not sure either. And I think it wouldn't be uncommon for this situation to come up because I feel that, um, you know, a lot of times these things can happen when someone is intoxicated whether or not it was intentional from the other person Mm -hmm. um so i'm not sure how they handle that i think the most important thing would be to preserve any physical evidence if there is any Mm -hmm. um i'm not sure what the timeline is for that but i think you know they just say that after an event happens one of the most important things to do is to like save your clothes like don't take a shower before you're able to get to the hospital and things like that which is extremely difficult considering you've just been through a really traumatic experience and that's probably the first thing that you want to do um but i think in that case probably like pre- preserving the physical evidence as much as you can and then um you know getting them treatment to help them come off of whatever is going on yeah um but yeah i'm not sure it doesn't seem you know like you would get as reliable of answers whether or not it was the intention of the person it would just be really difficult i think to um undergo questioning at that time i agree and that's kind of my thought where i feel like a lot of times when women are like coming forward with stories of rape there's so many well you don't remember this you don't remember that and i do feel like there it then becomes even more heightened if you're um asking somebody who is still like actively intoxicated and then later on you're like well it didn't match your story and it's like Mm -hmm. well i was drunk (laughs) you know um so i don't know i just it's it, it was interesting or something that i thought about um Anyway, a few hours after the party, one of the Duke lacrosse players named Ryan McFadden sent an email to the rest of the team. The email was like literally insane in my opinion. I'm not going to read it um, word for word. So I'll just like paraphrase it to like avoid the vulgarities. But he basically was like, to whom it may concern, I'm going to invite some strippers over, murder them, then I'll cut off their skin while ejaculating. Let me know if you want to join. Like, what? <laughs> like, I, like, speechless. I don't know. Whatever. Um, 
But yeah, that's the email he sent to it, to the team. And so that email ended up getting leaked. And so as Crystal's claims, sorry, as Crystal's claims became public knowledge, the public kind of considered that email to be some something of like an admission of guilt by the Duke players. Um, like if they can put something like that in writing, then maybe it is possible that they did rape someone. Um, and also because it happened on the same night that like he sent the email, like I think a few hours after um, the party. So a little weird. Um, but the players were like, no, it was just ironic humor. Yeah, so, so ironic. Oh my God, I just saw something that was really funny that was like, mm-hmm. like some like nerdy looking kid and it was like, I have like a special kind of humor or like, I don't know, but it was like sexism, which I think is so fitting. I think that there are a lot of people. See, like I'm a, pr- I like comedy, you know, I like to watch stand up comedians. I, people like funny people, but what I don't like is when people just make jokes that are just like offensive for the sake of being offensive. And I feel like yeah. that's kind of what this email falls into. It's like just being gross, like and yeah, predatory right. for the sake of being predatory, and like it's just not. There's nothing like funny about it. Like the punchline is violence. You know what I mean? Like it's not like I <laughs> like not funny. I don't yeah, know. I don't like sexually aggressive language, yeah. even like used in like plain speak i guess it Mm -hmm. really bothers me and so something like that is especially disgusting yeah and like Um, why would you put it in an email that people can trace because it was 2006 if people didn't know any better (laughs) people still don't but continue um and so school administrators actually also defended the email explaining that it was just an imitation of patrick bateman in american psycho oh i don't know i've never seen that I don't know what that it's is. It's very disturbing, but um, well, essentially you know. it's a guy who murders a bunch of people, but then he's, like, rich, so, like, no one notices. And it's kind of, I think it's a psychological thriller in the sense that you don't know if the murders are actually happening or if he's just imagining it in his head. Oh. Um, but super creepy white guy murders people is basically It's kind the of, there's like, there's, like, some really rich white guy who I think like he's gay and he has these like parties and like gay black men always turn up dead at his house like real it's like a thing and i don't think he's ever been arrested like i think the i think maybe the da there like just refuses to like do anything um it's very strange um that just reminded me and that's like real life yeah um but yeah, I don't know. It might, it, I think it's California. Um, anyway, so the day after the party, the police began their investigation. Um, like they searched the home, they did, they did a ton of stuff. And then days later, the Durham Police Department showed crystal photo arrays, kind of like a police lineup just with pictures to have her identify the men who raped her. Um, So I think we've all seen like police lineups in like movies or TV shows. And in those cases, they always have like random people just there that aren't suspects at all, like mixed into like people who possibly are suspects. Um, And so those people are known as fillers. 
And so the use of fillers is the Durham Police Department's recommended policy when doing photo arrays. But in this case, they only showed crystal pictures of the Duke lacrosse players. So by this time, Crystal was now claiming that she was only raped by a handful of players, now not 20. Which, again, she, I mean, she was very likely intoxicated when she gave her first statement, so. Right, and know. if it had happened, um, kind of saying after the fact that we know that it didn't, I think it wouldn't be unusual to be extremely terrified and maybe it felt like there were more people than there were, mm -hmm. especially if you're intoxicated. So that's... yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And so at the time of the first photo array, she only identified Reed Seligman as someone who attended the party, but not as someone who assaulted her. And so if you recall, uh, like what I said earlier, like Reed had left the party after Kristen, Crystal and Kim locked themselves in the bathroom the first time. But Crystal says the rape happened like after they had already come out. Um, of the bathroom and so later they showed her pictures again and so this time it was of all 46 white duke lacrosse players no fillers this time she identified reed as one of her attackers and she also identified colin the other player that had left with reed and then uh, another guy david evans as her attackers and so notably in the first photo array she was actually shown two photos of David, but she never identified him. Um, again, doesn't really mean much, but you never know. Um, and so she also identified another player who wasn't at the party. And at that point, investigators still weren't really questioning her credibility, really. Um, they were, they just removed that guy from the suspect list. Um, and so like my thing here is even though at this point police officers don't know like what we all know now, I would now be hesitant to say that it was the specific guys because she's clearly having issues with identifying anyone from the entire group. Like there were some moments where she was like, oh no, it wasn't Colin. It was a guy who looked like him. Um, he had a mustache or no, he had a beard, like just kind of like switching it. And so like devil's again, advocate though. If someone is intoxicated and like we know that witnesses aren't often very reliable, I think that it would make, you know, it might be possible that someone just might not, you know, trauma affects the way our brain processes mm -hmm. memories. So, and especially if you're intoxicated on top of that, um, I don't think it would be super unusual if someone didn't recognize the person who did it. But that being said, it is a little unusual that I, I it was like, just wrong across the board. Yeah, I agree with you. And so I, I guess my kind of what I'm saying is because there were so many different people and she was like having tr like she it was like, wait, maybe it was this thing. Maybe it was that guy. Like, how do you know that you're charging the right people? You yes. Know? Well, like, yeah, it's my only. You would want to make sure that you identified who was even there at that time and I think considering that there were so many other people not that you know I think it would be um you know the fraternity brothers might try to protect each other so you might mm -hmm. not get straight answers from them but um it would be important to take yeah. all of the witness statements and try to put together a cohesive story if someone could 
corroborate um, that, oh, yeah, these particular guys were missing for a certain period of time, um, Mm -hmm. you know, that might indicate, okay, that lines up with what she was saying or, like, during this time period, someone heard noises coming from here. Um, Yeah. Yeah, you would just want, given that there were so many potential witnesses, you would want to make sure that the story was as credible as it could be. Exactly. And I, I think in general, it's just a really difficult case, um, especially for them at that point in time. I just feel like 2006 didn't have that much technology. <laughs> uh, 2006 so. wasn't that long ago, but OK. They had like cell phones and stuff. I, I had an yeah. iPod. OK. I was in middle school. I like, was. I'm the same age as you. <laughs> yeah. But like there weren't like like netflix i think you still got like yeah they mailed you netflix (laughs) true true (laughs) it wasn't where it is today like you couldn't like track someone's phone data and see like oh they went here or like they texted this person but it's it wasn't like the 1800s yeah they still have like dna technology yeah yes (laughs) i'm I'm just being ridiculous it wasn't the stone ages natalie yes Yes. i understand what you're saying though yeah um so like you like you said they did have dna and so they did dna tests and nothing but nothing connected the players to the alleged rape still reed and colin were arrested a month later on april 18th they were charged with first degree forcible rape um first degree sexual offense and kidnapping reed allegedly told i have his a quick team- question sorry yeah. to interrupt you but along the lines of dna so i think it is totally feasible that there might not be any semen present because mm-hmm. people who rape still sometimes wear condoms that's a thing mm-hmm. um but do you know if they tested like fingernails yes, yes. and did they find dna so there was two things. I'm sorry so, if I'm like getting ahead of. No, no, I don't. Going. I actually, um, to like help cut down on time, I cut that part out like specifically. Oh. But they, um, they tested her the DNA under her like actual fingernails. Like when she was at the hospital, they collected that. But in the bathroom, they had also found. It looks like she had like press on nails as well, and she had like taken those off. Mm. And so they also tested the DNA on those. And so, not, and then, like, you know, other, like, physical, like, bodily um, DNA. And so nothing connected the players to the alleged rape. Um, and, um, yeah, so still Reed and Colin were arrested, and they were charged with uh, first-degree forcible rape, first-degree sexual offense, and kidnapping. I think I just said that. Um, and so Reed allegedly told his teammates that he was actually glad that they, quote, picked him. Because he felt like he had a solid alibi to get out of it. Um, he had cell phone records. He had an affidavit from his taxi driver that evening. Pictures, cell phone and ATM records, and a time-stamped record of his student ID card being swiped to get into his dorm room. Um, and so a third player, named David Evans, who I had mentioned earlier, he was also arrested um, in May on the same charges and so all players of course adamantly did not like maintain their um, innocence and so whether motivated by genuine belief that something or something more self-serving the district attorney mike nifong n-i-f-o-n-g not sure um he 
was pretty convinced that the three men committed rape and he spoke openly about it being likely racially charged. Uh, It's important to note that he was also up for re-election, so it begs the question if the fervor with which he pursued the case um, and how vocal he was like publicly about the case, which is like unusual for district for district attorneys, um, like if that might have been driven by his desire to kind of like win the black vote um, to help his like reelection campaign. And so there at, the, at this point, there were actually many kind of concerns from like different investigators about how credible uh, Crystal was. But those concerns were largely ignored by the DA. He also contacted a private DNA testing company to perform a second round of DNA testing. Um, this time, though, the results were inconclusive and the report basically was like, we can't rule any of them out. It's totally possible. Um and so Kim and the other, sorry, Kim, the other woman who was hired to strip that night provided an initial statement to investigators in which she said that she was actually with Crystal for like the entire time at the party, um, except for like a period of no more than five minutes. When Crystal heard that Crystal was, sorry, when Kim heard that Crystal was claiming to have been raped, she Kim called the allegations a crock of what? I don't know. (laughs) And so later in December, Crystal ended up telling an investigator a completely different version of what happened that night. At that point, it was kind of hard to ignore some of the credibility issues that were coming up. Crystal herself even said at one point that she wasn't sure about aspects of her original story that she had told investigators. And so just like a few of the inconsistencies um, included, actually the first time she talked to police, she said that she was groped. And so then that changed to rape. And then the number went from 20 men to three. Again, those are all things that it's like, I don't, I don't think those are conclusive that mm-hmm. nothing happened. Um, then she said that the first time that she was attacked, it happened like um, past midnight. And then she said it happened like she was adamant that it happened between 1135 and 12 a.m. Um, for the entirety of that, like almost 30 minute period. And so that actually gave Reed an alibi because he had proof that he wasn't there at the time. In addition, phone records showed that Crystal had gotten a call at 11.36 and she stayed on the phone for three minutes. Again, maybe she meant 11.45, not 11.35. And so there were, but there were also pictures of Crystal dancing that were timestamped between 12 a.m. and 12.04 a.m. And then she left with Kim at 12.53 a.m. And so if Crystal's timeline of events had like been accurate that means that she stayed at the party for like almost a full hour after she after the attack um and so she also claimed that she was held like in the air in the bathroom while the assault was happening like like multiple men were holding her and yeah and so like forensic people kind of went in they're like it's kind of improbable like that like the bathroom's too small like it Mm -hmm. wouldn't work that way but again you know um and so again the other one was that she 
like wasn't consistently picking the same like attackers but after she ended up telling like the completely different version of events the da kind of had no choice but to drop the rape charges but the kidnapping and sexual offense charges weren't dropped and so i guess the rationale for dropping the rape charges is you literally have no dna evidence um like you have this forensic evidence that's saying like it probably couldn't have happened here and then you're getting like two wildly different versions of events from the same person and so it's i don't necessarily think it's an issue of like not believing her at that point but it's just that they would be able to to prove if they yeah if they were to do like the full case exactly the jury wouldn't have enough reasons to yeah convict exactly um i doubt they'd even have enough evidence to like bring it to a grand jury so um the district attorney also found himself in hot water with the North Carolina Bar Association for all of his prejudicial statements um, to like the media and just basically saying, I know these boys did it and things like that. It also came to light that he conspired with a D- with that DNA lab director to withhold exculpatory, what a word, evidence um, that would have cleared the lacrosse players of the rape allegations altogether. He basically was like, let's just, you know, don't say that. Um, And so it took almost a year for Roy Cooper, the state's attorney general, to dismiss the charges and declare that the players were innocent of the charges. Roy Cooper more or less plainly stated that Crystal had lied. Like he, um, I guess... He more or less implied that Crystal had lied, saying, and he also said that we have no credible evidence that an attack occurred in that house that night. And um, so that said, Crystal also was never charged with any like false reporting or false statements or anything like that. Um, And so that's the case of the Duke lacrosse case, but I still have some more to share about Crystal. And so in in 2008, she. In 2008, she wrote um, a memoir about the case, giving her version of events. And um, I didn't like look too deep into it, but I, she, I think she still is like it happened. Um, and also, she kind of goes into um, about like the um, the police report that she filed, saying that she had been kidnapped when she was 14. She's also like that. She's like vehement in the book that that also happened. Um, and then in 2010, so six years after the um, false rape allegations, uh, Crystal's daughter, who was nine years old at the time, um, called the police because Crystal and her live-in boyfriend were fighting. And Crystal, like, took his clothes and put them in the bathroom. <laughs> and I don't know if you, if anyone's, like, familiar with, like, le- like Left Eye from TLC, it's basically the same scenario when she, like, set her like football player boyfriend's shoes on fire and then burned down the house um so she she like put all of her boyfriend's clothes in the bathroom set fire to it and um so her daughter called the police um and she ended up being arrested on charges of attempted murder first degree arson assault and battery identity theft uh communicating threats damage to property resisting an officer and misdemeanor child abuse um while she was out on bond she was only allowed to see her children her three children under supervised visitation but she ended up getting arrested again because she wasn't complying with the visitation order and so seeing them outside of those visitation times 
And so she ended up getting convicted um, in December for contributing to delinquency of a juvenile, which I guess might be she like did something illegal or whatever with her kid um, while she was not supposed to be with her child. Um, And then injury to personal property and resisting a police, uh, sorry, resisting a public officer. And, but the jury couldn't reach a decision on the arson charge. And so she ended up getting sentenced to 88 days in jail, but got time served because um, her original bond was set at $1 million and like, hello, cash bonds suck. And so she ended up having to stay in jail until they reduced the bond to um, $100,000, which I guess means that she only needed to give up 10% of that. And so um, she ended up not having to go to jail after that. Um, and so the last part of this, <laughs> the following April, so that would be April 2011, Crystal was arrested because she was, or she repeatedly stabbed her boyfriend. This is a different boyfriend, but then before, um, this guy is, his name was Reginald Day. And so, um, she was charged with assault with a deadly weapon and like with the intent to kill or inflict serious bodily injury. And so in um North Did Carolina you <laughs> in North Carolina, that is a class C felony. And to answer your question, Rachel, ten days after the attack, Rachel died from his wounds. Um, Reginald, from- you mean? Sorry, Reginald. Rachel didn't die. <laughs> Reginald died. Still here, guys. Rachel, Reginald. They're, they're That's what I get alike. for interrupting. I'm sorry. They kind of sound alike. So yeah, 10 days after the attack, Reginald died from the wounds inflicted by Crystal, which, like, horrible. So he was still in the hospital. Unfortunately, he didn't make it. And so Crystal's charges ended up being elevated to second degree murder. And her defense was that she stabbed Reginald in self-defense, which was a lie because forensic reports like were conclusive that it was very clear that he was trying to get away based on the way the um, wounds were. Um, and so in November of 2013, Crystal was convicted of second degree murder and sentenced to 14 to 18 years in prison. And she's still there now. Oh man, what a case. Roller coaster, right? <laughs> <sighs> I have so many feelings. So many feelings that share them. Uh, I'm just wondering how much I should like uncork like and release. But um, you know Ooh, I can edit it out. <laughs> coming from a perspective, it sounds like this person very much needed some type of mental health treatment. Um, you know, it sounds like there was possibly a disorder, which again, you know, we kind of get into the argument of like, okay, how much of it is their disorder versus they're just maybe not so good of a person. But oh my God, the false rape allegation cases just make me so mad because it just gives like fuel to the fire of people who say, oh, well, she could be lying about this. And to me, it just, you know, questions, makes people question their credibility. I mean, like, good people shouldn't do this and should take every case on a case-by-case basis, you know? Um, But, you know, I think the more stories that exist out there of 
false rape allegations, the more, mm-hmm. you know, less likely it could be that someone be believed or someone might see this story and think, oh, I can't come out with my story. They're going to think I'm lying because I think yeah. there have been so many cases of people coming out and people assumed they were lying the whole time. Or like you were saying, there are some cases where there, um, you know, just isn't a lot of physical evidence. So it, it, it does become a he said, she said, um, or he said, he said, she said, she said, um, or she said, he said whatever you know what i'm saying um or they said they said they said they said yes um gosh thank you so much for for including that (laughs) i think that um you know it sounds like there were some factors that made crystal she could have been at a higher risk for being sexually assaulted especially being in this situation where these guys too just sounded like they were being jerks to her not that it was you know that doesn't make anything okay um of what happened but yeah that just oh grinds my gears i don't like hearing about false rape allegations um just makes me really mad well my case is about another liar but as i i texted natalie um like two days ago i think i'm just getting like so heated from this case it makes me very angry and you'll soon see why but like also sticking in the theme of liars. Um, so today I will be telling you the story of a girl who came back from the dead. So on August 31st, 1998, Natasha Ryan was dropped off at school by her mother. But Natasha never showed up to school and she was quickly reported missing. She was last seen standing outside of a movie theater smoking a cigarette with an older man. Uh, witnesses nearby later um had reported hearing the sounds of screeching tires perhaps from a car that was trying to make a quick getaway so already there was a lot of suspicion and a lot of um an immediate reason for concern in this case so natasha was only 14 years old and she had been going through a bit of a difficult time she had recently been suspended from school she was experimenting with drugs was engaging in some self-harm and was receiving counseling, which is great. Exactly what should be happening. Um, ma- oh my gosh, I wrote down how to pronounce this. At what my- point does experimenting with drugs turn into doing drugs? I don't know. I I <laughs> battled with myself on the language to use for that because I don't know if I love like experimenting with drugs um, as a term. Yeah. Um, I just don't think it's very accurate, but I think... In a sense, well, there's a difference between, oh, I'm trying drugs for the first time, um, you know, trying drugs a little bit here and there, or being addicted and engaging in substance abuse. I think, you know, any drug usage at 14 years old is reason for concern, um, but it didn't give enough details, and that's just the terminology that I borrowed from my source, so... I hear you. I Relax. just thought it was a funny question, and I wanted to see if I could trip you up. <sighs> <laughs> I took a lot Keep of addictions courses in grad school, Natalie. I will have you know. Um, so, <laughs> Mayoha, I hope I'm saying that right, um, Takuto, Nat- Natasha's best friend, who was also 14 at the time, was reported to be the last person who saw Natasha alive. I will say, quick disclaimer, 
a lot of sources, there was a lot of inconsistencies. So if I say something that doesn't sound right, it could be just because I pulled it from a source or it could be my mistake. I don't know. Um, but so Mayo Ha's family had recently moved to Rockhampton, Australia. Uh, this case takes place in Australia, if I didn't already say that, from Taranaka, a region of the west of New Zealand's North Island. Mayoha's parents had moved to seek a better life in Australia, but Mayoha was understandably not happy. He was leaving his friends and his school where he felt happy and he had people he knew. Um, Mayoha had also been doing really well in school and he had even gotten mentioned in the local newspapers. Um, I guess they would highlight people who got good grades. Um, and so when Mayoha met Natasha, they instantly clicked. Maybe they got along so well because they both were feeling a little misunderstood during this time. Uh, Mayoha, Natasha, and a few friends began to engage in substance use. Um, so there was a local spot that they had heard of where two older men would supply children with drugs. One of those men was Leonard Frazier, who would later be linked in the murder of some young girls. So right before Natasha went missing, she witnessed something terrible. Mayoha and two of their friends had been drugged and raped by the two older men. And so this is Mayoha's source. Some of the other sources did not mention this, and they did say that Natasha never knew Leonard. So just throwing that out here, but I'm going to, I believe Mayoha's story. Um, it sounds like there was links there, so I'm going to go ahead and continue to tell it. So the kids were all really scared after the in incident, and Mayoha felt guilty that Natasha had witnessed the rape and wasn't able to help. So it was only a week after that Natasha was reported missing that this incident occurred. So from the start, police were really suspicious of Mayoha. He reported uh, police in plain clothes would sit outside of his home for days and trying to find any information they could against him. And two years after Natasha went missing, they finally gathered enough evidence to arrest Mayoha. And he was arrested in his English class in front of all the other students and his teacher was crying. Uh, I think understandably any teacher would be upset in that situation. And the school counselor came running into the classroom telling them that they weren't allowed to do this. But they did it anyway. Um, so everyone had turned against Mayoha after his arrest. He wasn't able to go to school for months because people thought that he had murdered his best friend. The community was small and tight-knit. Mayoha couldn't even walk down the street without facing scrutiny. Also, his father, Alistair, who coached the school's rugby league, um, had moved his family out of the community to a different state. Mayoha was formally interviewed by the police where he told them about the rape, but even two years later, Mayoha was afraid to make a formal report. So even in the case of um, this rape, it was never formally reported. There were never charges that, you know, came from that. Um... But so after hearing some of Mayoha's story and making some links on their own, the blame for Natasha's disappearance was shifted to Leonard Frazier. So eight months after Natasha went missing, another young girl was missing in Rockhampton. Nine-year-old Kira Steinhardt went missing when she was walking home from school. Hundreds of volunteers gathered together to search for Kira. They scored the bush, the waterways, and parks looking for the missing girl. After completing the investigation, all fingers pointed to Leonard Frazier. They had completed a search on his car and found blood. 
they completed forensic testing that confirmed the blood belonged to Kira, but they also found the blood of another person, leading them to believe that there might be another, um, this might be linked to another missing person. So Leonard finally revealed where he had dumped Kira's body after two weeks of intensive questioning. Kira was found on the outskirts of town, dumped in the bushland. Leonard had grabbed her in broad daylight when she was walking home from school, assaulted her, and dragged her to his car. He raped her, and when he was finished, he killed her. Oh my god. I know. So sad. Um, so there were actually several women who had gone missing in Rockhampton around this time, including Natasha. So due to the evidence found in Leonard's car and the gruesome nature of Kira's murder, police were led to believe that Leonard might be responsible for additional murders. He was convicted of Kira's murder, but did not disclose any information about the other killings. Leonard was placed in the general population in prison, and as I'm sure uh, this will come to no surprise to anyone, the other inmates did not f- look favorably on child murderers and rapists. So Leonard was desperate to get out and be placed in protective custody. He had befriended another man in prison who had actually begun his own investigative process, extracting information from Leonard about the other missing women, probably so that he could, you know, bargain and get a better uh, deal for himself, maybe shave a few years off his sentence, but police would later use the information they received to get Leonard to complete a full confession about everything else that had happened. So prosecutors met with Leonard and offered him a deal. If he confessed to the murders of Sylvia Bendetti, Beverly Lego, and the manslaughter of Julie Turner, he could be placed in protective custody. And at that time, Leonard also confessed to the murder of Natasha Ryan. Um, so it was believed that the search for Natasha cost taxpayers approximately $400,000. Um, there were other sources that said it cost like, and I'll say this later. Um, I'll just wait. I'll wait till later and I'll get back to it. I don't want to give anything away. Um, Hey everyone. We had another recording kind of flub this episode so for the rest of the episode it'll just be rachel hopefully we have it fixed by next week so it was believed that the search for natasha cost taxpayers approximately four hundred thousand australian dollars um some other case or some other of my sources said different numbers I'll go into that a bit more later just because I don't want to give too much away. Um, but they had also burned extensive areas of bushland while searching for Natasha in hopes of finding her. A hundred state emergency service volunteers had come together to help search for Natasha, hoping they might be able to provide the Ryan family with some answers about the fate of their daughter. When Leonard confessed, the Ryan family was faced with the news they never wanted to hear. Natasha was dead. Natasha's family held a memorial service on what would have been her 17th birthday, May 9th of 2001. So the trial for murder was taking place in Brisbane Supreme Court when something happened that would turn the investigation upside down. An anonymous note was sent to the police. It said, Natasha Ryan is alive and well. You can contact her on, and then it had the phone of a, a phone number of a home located in North Rockhampton. So the police were shocked. They had just secured a confession for Natasha's murder and her family thought she was dead. 
So they raided the home in Rockhampton that was just a few blocks away from the Ryan family home on April 10th, 2003. There they found Natasha alive and hidden away in a tiny cupboard. The very next day, police announced during Leonard's trial that he was not guilty for the murder of Natasha, given that she was still alive. Her family was shocked. Her father, Robert, nearly collapsed in the courtroom. So Robert believed he would die never knowing what happened to his daughter. His mother, or her mother was convinced that Natasha was dead, saying, I don't believe that Natasha would have let me go through all the pain if she was out there. And Natasha would end up attending her own murder trial 20 days later, where she would finally tell the story behind her disappearance. So, (laughs) Natasha had started dating, and I use this term very loosely, Scott Black before she went missing. Scott was 21 at the time, and, you know, if you remember how old Natasha was when she went missing, she was 14 years old. So, a 14-year-old dating a 21-year-old, um, dating in quotation marks, I don't know what the age of consent was at this time, but it didn't seem like that was a factor in this, um, But it turns out in July of 1998, two months before Natasha went missing, Scott had helped Natasha run away from home. He paid for her to stay in a motel, but Natasha returned home after two days. Which, like, if this had just happened, how were they not tailing this man? Like, performing a home search on this man? Like, I just don't understand how there wasn't more of an investigation into this person. (sighs) I'm starting to get really frustrated. But in 1999, Scott had pled guilty to willful obstruction of police after he told them he had no idea where she was after she went missing the first time. And that, of course, was a lie. And Scott also knew what happened to Natasha after she went missing two months later. So it turns out Natasha had been living with Scott the whole time. Um, During most of her disappearance, Natasha was staying at a home located in Yapoon, Queensland. The pair would move back to um, Queensland six months before, or I think the pair would move back to Rockhampton, I think is what I meant to say, six months before Natasha was found uh, due to a transfer in Scott's milk delivery job. While the media would portray her as the girl in the cupboard, Natasha actually had free reign of the home during the day as long as the curtains were drawn. And Natasha would only hide in the cupboard if people came to the home to visit Scott. Uh, Natasha and Scott had also went outside a few times during the night, including a midnight trip to the beach. So, I think articles like... And this is what I will say. This only happened back in 2003, or whatever it was, um, early 2000s, I'll say. But all of the articles very much portrayed Natasha as a liar and like, oh, this teenage girl, like, oh, she was bad. Oh, she's the girl in the cupboard. But to me, it's like, this was a 21-year-old man who isolated a 14-year-old girl from her family and kind of created this whole narrative. Like, she had to hide in the cupboard when he had friends over. Like, that to me does not scream healthy relation. And I think that's something that greatly disappoints me about the reporting and all this is that 
I don't think a 14-year-old should ever engage in a relationship with a 21-year-old. I think the age difference itself, you know, isn't what, it's like a seven-year age gap. That's not really that big. If they were to meet later in life, if she was 21 and he was 28, sure, you might be telling a different story. She's 14 years old. You isolated her from her family. You know, there was... I think Natasha felt as if she couldn't leave because she had dug herself so deep in this hole. Like, and she, I'm sure that she was aware of all these discussions that were going on. There were so many people looking for her. Her family was so upset. She had no access to, you know, money to get away if she wanted to. She was just very much trapped in this situation. So whether or not initially she went quote unquote willingly, I think that it just ended up it's just bad it's just bad and I don't necessarily blame her at all because she was a minor in this case Natasha would later say she had regrets about leaving but felt it was too late to return home the lie had just grown way too big so she continued to hide during this time Natasha and Scott went to extreme lengths to avoid suspicion Natasha would make her own sanitary products out of cut-up bath towels because it would look suspicious if Scott bought them for her. Which, like, to me, that just tells you how wrong this all is. Like, that's terrible. She didn't have access, like, she wouldn't have been able to go to the doctor during this time. What if she got sick? Um, she wasn't getting her regular check. And, like, these are things that someone would check for, like... I don't know how it goes in Australia, but if a person's uh, child was, like, being investigated, they do check to see are they getting regular medical treatment, are they being taken to the dentist, things like that. So, like, ugh, she had to be so hidden. Um, and to me, that's just what a kind of... I don't know if I would go as far to see, like, traumatizing, but what an uncomfortable experience. I think... Um, speaking from the perspective of someone who's had their period before um it can be like around 14 you might have just started your period you might not have started it yet like um and just that's something like almost shameful of like oh you have to and like yeah not having the proper um you know materials to that's just doesn't feel comfortable and just you know adds an additional layer of discomfort to an already pretty uncomfortable time um so uh, anyway um so natasha would tell the magazine new idea in 2007 um he was protecting me and i caused him to do it it was my fault he did it it was my decision to run away he was doing something really lovely protecting me and i felt like i should have been or deserved to be punished which to me, it just makes me want to hit my head up against a wall. Like, that is, he was the adult in the situation and you were the child. And, you know, and then she stopped having any education. Like, <laughs> she wasn't going to school. That could probably be pretty, like, emotionally stunting to only have contact with one person and, like, to be hidden in a cupboard for a good portion of the time. Also, the fact that they were in a relationship and that there was a potential like sexual aspect of that i mean it would be 
I just can't find, like, I always am trying to find the other side of, like, let's see where this could have been explained, like, differently or how it could have been viewed differently by this person. But um, I just can't, like, unless, like, there was no sexual relationship between them. Like, let's say she was in a really bad situation at home and maybe the police had been called and hadn't done anything about it and she was fearing for her life or was being abused and this person took her away and hid her. But there was, like, no... It was, like, completely platonic. There was no, like, sexual relationship there. Then I might feel more lenient. It, I still don't think that that would be 100% the right thing to do. Um, but the fact that there was a sexual aspect of this, just, like, ugh, I do not like. Um, Sue, uh, Max Markson, a celebrity agent, flew down or up from Sydney, or west, east, I don't know, geography of Australia, um, came from Sydney, <laughs> you know, just, that just makes it all the more difficult, uh, the day after Natasha was found to represent her, the media was going nuts, and everybody wanted the rights to Natasha's story. The 60 Minutes program and two magazines paid, uh, reported $250,000 for the rights to Natasha's story. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, Natasha's town was a, a smaller, you know, more tight-knit community, and it was usually quiet, but after Natasha returned to the public eye, it was packed with journalists. So Natasha would pose... Um, inside of the infamous cupboard for photo ops um and every few years i think she ended up having three kids but she would announce a pregnancy which the media went nuts over that um to the same guy so one magazine reportedly paid two hundred thousand dollars for photo rights for her wedding to scott so natasha and scott got married <laughs> which I think like some might say now oh well she's 18 or over the age of 18 she can legally consent now she's made this decision but if you consider that this guy cut her off from all her other supports and started this relationship when she was underage like that's just wrong and the fact that she is taking in all this money for magazines and stuff like I think that made the media dislike her even more because they're like, oh, look, she's just doing this for the money. But she also possibly didn't have any other way to make money. And, um, you know, when you're coming out of a cupboard, she obviously didn't graduate high school. Like, um, I think that in that situation, she may not have necessarily loved the attention or, you know, wanted it. But just, you know, when you're cut off from your family a little bit, and, I don't know, Scott was a milkman. I don't think he was making all the big bucks. But, um, and is it possible to have, like, a truly consensual relationship with someone that technically was your abuser at some point? I don't know that it is possible. So, uh, they got married. They had a four-year-old son at the time of the marriage named Corey. And they hoped the wedding would show that the world that they were in love and most of all, Natasha was happy to shed her last name. She no longer wanted to be labeled Natasha Ryan, the girl in the cupboard. So you might be wondering, 
where is the lady crime here? Well, in 2006, Natasha was found guilty of causing a false police investigation, and she was fined $1,000. Police prosecutor Terry Gardner was furious. So after the guilty verdict, Terry had found the contract between Channel 9 and Natasha's celebrity agent, showing that Natasha had signed a deal for $1,200. And he was trying to show that Natasha should be responsible for some. And this is where they said um, $151,000 that was spent to investigate her disappearance. Um, Another source I saw said $400,000, but it's possible that they were considering um, costs outside of maybe the police department. Um, So like if you add up like the volunteers time or, you know, maybe people, there were groups that were investigating outside of the police. So I just wanted to note that discrepancy there. But specifically in this court case, they were looking for um, $151,000. Supposedly, Natasha and her mother, Jenny, were unable to account for $85,000 of the money from the media groups. Jenny, uh, her mom, said that she had only received $35,000 and the money had went towards legal fees. And Jenny said that she was also not aware that she would be paid for her interviews with 60 Minutes and uh, the magazine The Woman's Day until one month after she completed the interviews. Um so she was giving kind of mixed information saying, you know, I wasn't, sh- I didn't know I was getting paid until Max Markson had asked me for my banking information. Um, but magistrate Annette Hennessy ruled that Natasha would not have the means to pay for investigation costs and a conviction was not recorded. So I'm not sure why. It sounds like some of the money was split up and a lot of it, legal fees can add up really quickly. So I'm sure that um, there was a lot of money that just kind of got drained there. But either way, it was decided that she wouldn't have the means to pay the entire investigation uh, costs. Scott, however, was convicted and fined $3,000. And additionally, he would have to pay more than $16,000 towards the investigation cost. Um, So Natasha studied nursing at Central Queensland University, and it's believed that she is currently working in the profession. Scott and Natasha have supposedly left town to avoid media attention. That's all we know about that. Um, But just to quickly wrap up uh, the case of Leonard Frazier. So he was found guilty of the murders of Beverly Lego and Sylvia Bendetti and the manslaughter of Julie Turner. And on June 13th, 2003, Leonard was sentenced to three indefinite prison terms. He died at the age of 54 from a heart attack on January 1st, 2007. And um, wrapping up my Hoya story. So Mohoya spoke to the magazine Now to Love 10 years after Natasha's disappearance. He shared he blamed himself for Natasha going missing. He thought that she might have run away after she saw what happened to him. And he said he cried every night after she disappeared and he feared that she might be dead. And he said he also brought Natasha's mother flowers every Mother's Day for the four years that Natasha was missing. So that's very sad and upsetting that it was pinned on him and that he was arrested um, after he had gone through a lot of traumatic situations. Um, And gosh, like, 
yeah, having your friend disappear itself is traumatic, but everything leading up to it, being arrested, like, that just is terrible. But at the end of the day, I don't think that Natasha was to blame in this situation. I don't think she was, like, perfect, but I think that Scott is the true criminal. And I think a 14-year-old shouldn't necessarily, should have different considerations around anything that they might do. Um, So, yeah, it's completely possible that she might have wanted to run away and, you know, get away from home. But clearly she was going through a really hard time and I think just needed, you know, maybe some family therapy or something, but not like hiding in the cupboard of your 21 year old boyfriend like that's just ridiculous and the way that the media treated her afterwards and I think it kind of colored her family's reaction too. her family you know is having to learn to like trust her again and reestablish that relationship but to me it's like I think that Scott's behavior was very predatory and you know isolated her from her supports and just overall was bad. Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast.